Welcome to Deeper Dive. I'm your host, Dawn, and today is season four, episode 45. And it's so wonderful to have all of you here again, listening to our wonderful podcast. Again, Joe is not available, but he is much better. So we think he thanks you for all your prayers, um, he, but he just couldn't make it today. But he will be hopefully back next week. And just remember that you can always do your comments to 954-388-8780 via text, or you can send them to plantationsda.tv. And today we had Men's Ministry Week end, actually it was the whole weekend, on Friday night all the way through the Sabbath hours with pastor or doctor or both, Jason Oruk, good good afternoon. How are you? How are you doing? doing? Well, it's a pleasure to uh, to see you again. Um, awesome. I'm very privileged to, to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, you're very welcome. So, before we get into your sermon, which was on God, faith, and trauma, um, let's just have a word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank you so much for all that you continue to do for us. We thank you for the way that we will be, we were ministered to this weekend. We ask now, Lord, that as we go into this sermon a little deeper, that you'll just highlight the things that are so important for our lives, that we will be able to come closer to you. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. All right. So God, faith, and trauma. Was that your idea for that title or was that the whole theme for this weekend? The theme for this weekend was your story matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, the gentleman, we looked through the life of David specifically on Friday night. um, And and that and so God, faith and trauma was my idea. But their theme was your story matters. One of the challenges that I have experienced and I'm I'm 49 now in in our denomination um, in church is that we struggle um, to embrace the challenging sides of our story, mm. We're pushing so forward toward perfection. And we mm. so despise imperfection that mm. we like to act like imperfection does not exist mm. um, at all. Um, and a lot of people are filled with a lot of shame when suddenly their imperfections are found out. Mm-hmm. So then we don't know how to help people when we see their imperfections. Mm. So it's either you're perfect or you're striving. Mm-hmm. And you know, your striving needs to be consistently seen on the upward trend. Mm-hmm. And if there's an imperfection that shows up, well, how do we deal with it? Well, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so people are hiding. A lot of people are hiding their imperfections. And the church is supposed to be a place where these things are type of, are, are addressed in a non-condemning, convicting, right. converting, confessing way. Right, right. But we we are not, we have not been in my years that place because mm-hmm. of our emphasis on mm-hmm. being perfect yeah. um, you know as we you know we as we strive for holiness for which <laughs> we never and our concept of perfection and holiness are synonymous exactly so we never reach holiness because we mm-hmm. know we're never perfect mm-hmm. and that becomes significantly problematic it's almost it's a, it's all it almost becomes an and I'm not qualified to say this but if you if you if I observe people and I'm a psychologist or psychiatrist, I would say it borderlines potentially on a mental illness because mm-hmm. you're pushing and never arriving, and yet you're always condemning yourself for having mm-hmm. not reached 
what is what is too far for you to get to because you made holiness synonymous with perfection and that's that's that is a problem because the bible says only god alone is perfect exactly so what are we striving for when we use Mm -hmm. that word Mm -hmm. and so for me i'm like i'm i I want people to understand like there are things that we that the church struggles with that is part of your story exactly and I said this on Saturday, God died for the person that was struggling. Yeah. That's part of the story, like those mm. things. So we look at David and we looked at his life mm. and um, we looked at some things that people don't necessarily look at David about. Mm. Well, they normally talk about him getting anointed. They'll talk about how he's out there in the woods killing, you know, bears and lions. And then, right. he's, killed, then he's killing Goliath. Right. But nobody addresses the fact that David had probably had mother issues. Mm. Because his, he only mentions his mother one time. And it is mm-hmm. not in a good context. Mm-hmm. And we generalize his statements to, you know, she bore me in sin in general. That's not the text. He says, I was shaped in iniquity, which is rebellious perversion. Mm-hmm. And in sin, not general, specific, mm-hmm. that my mother conceived me. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing he says about his mother. And then you wonder why he has women problems later on in, in the text. Mm, he has women. He has, he has he, you know, his dad, when it comes time to anoint him, his dad leaves him out in the woods. Bring all the other boys. Right. He's wor- He is not worth being brought in. <laughs> you, see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not worth being. He's left aside. His brothers rebuke him when he comes doing his dad's duty. Right. But he gets rebuked. We know you. He's he's not really valued, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. by his father. So he has daddy issues. So he latches <laughs> on to Solomon. He latches on to Saul. In fact, mm-hmm. and I said this, Saul was the happiest time documented in his life before Saul tried to kill him. That was the happiest time documented in his life. Happiest. I don't think we ever look at um, that story with the eyes of who is his mother and how is he raised and and what he actually went through to see the way that he continued in his life and the and the rest of the story it just we just automatically assume well that was just david that was just the way he operated right i mean and you think about you think about sheep you know guarding sheep right okay and you're the youngest right your bigger brothers that would probably do a better job are not guarding sheep no they're not no so you put the youngest out there, arguably the smallest, right? Right, right. And so he's out there in dangerous scenarios with animals. So you smell like animals, you struggle like animals, you fight animals. Mm. That's the value of the that the family places. I mean, it's not it is not lost on me that mm. the one that is anointed is the one that is not valued. <laughs> it's wow. not lost to me. That, mm. that is what God did. I'm not confused about that at all because mm. Eliab should have been anointed. Mm. He fit the paradigm of Saul. He did. He did. The height and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He fit it. But that's not what was given. Right. No, I'm taking the one that nobody wants. The one that they left out there smelling like animals. Mm. One that they left out there with the wild animals. Now that, in our day, we would call that neglect. Of course, we would. We would. We would call that neglect. So, yeah. So we looked at that and looked at how that, you know, there are some things that David needs to confess. And by confession, we, there are two things. You either admit that it happens to you or you admit that you did it. Mm-hmm. 
That's just facts. Right. So, so David had a lot in his life that he must confess. This happened to me and I did this. Mm. And that's, that was, that was Friday night. The idea of just accepting the fact that I have things to confess. Wow. I have things to acknowledge, you know, right. um, to admit that I either did wrong or wrong was done to me. And I spent some time on that because um, we love to talk about sin in the sense of what did you do wrong? Because mm. it allows us to hold you accountable. Exactly. And we love to talk about sin existentially, at least. We love to, you're born in sin, changed in iniquity, you know, right. uh, none, all are evil. Okay, that's very general, and it, you know, but we don't like to give people excuses. So mm. we, we get off of that and go back to accountability. Mm. But we really are not comfortable talking about what happened to you. No, never. Right. And <laughs> that's a problem, because now it's like, this happened to you, and that means it's a responsibility of the greater community. And so now we have a responsibility to create a safe space to remove the communal obstacles that limit your decisions. Because sometimes the decisions that people make are due to a limit of options. Mm -hmm. You know, the lesser of two evils, that's what we call it. Right. That's fine. Well, how about let's remove some of the evils and put some good options there? Exactly. Then you can hold somebody accountable. Exactly. You know, so that, that you know, so that, those are the types of things that we did on Friday night. Why do you why do you think that within our church that we have that kind of problem to actually say this is what has happened and how do just bring it out in the open so it can be just there so everybody can see okay let's let's try and solve this biblically let's try and ask God how to do it. let's make this the point of all our prayers why do you think it's so hard for us as Christians just to talk about it You want an honest answer Correct. Okay. So I think a lot of this is sociological and cultural. Um, Adventism is birthed out of America first. Mm -hmm. And it's birthed out of um, Euro-colonialism. Mm -hmm. And Euro-colonialism, they had Puritan work ethic. Right. The Puritan right. work ethic. And so you, you had, and so that's how they talked to each other. And there was not an acknowledgement in this country of the evils that were being done among the Euro-Americans to each other. It was always get your life together, get yourself together, consistently get yourself together. That was the message that was taught, right? Mm -hmm. Adventism has a history. This is not me. These are the words of Ellen White. Ellen White says that at one point in time, um, we had preached the law so much that we were as dry as the hills of Gilboa where there was no rain. That's what she says, right? Now, sidebar, no, not sidebar, but in a, in, in, a, in, a, in, in, in conjunction with this, Mm -hmm. um, the 1888 message is the message of righteousness by faith. Right. Okay. Um, and, and that it has significant ramifications. It has sociologic ramifications. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, A.T. Jones understood along with other ministers that this meant that there should be equitable treatment and justice within the church. Right. Right. The problem is that by the time you get to 1888, we had baptized too many Southerners. And they were not out. They were not about equitable treatment. So they'll tell you right. they turned it down because of cheap grace. But what they won't tell you is that it was a sociological reality that we cannot be equitable in, in this denomination. Because if we're dealing with equity now in the denomination, there are some sociological changes that must take place among the ethnic majority of the denomination. They must mm -hmm. be willing to be persecuted. Mm -hmm. right? And they must be willing to be on equal terms in the church with their African, Indian and Chinese brethren. Right. And the Southerners were not willing to do that. 
So it's a lot easier just to talk about responsibilities of the individual and not talk about responsibilities of society. That's one. The second issue is that at the turn of the century, of the 20th century, A.T. Jones was the director of the Review and Herald. He was the editor of the right. Review. Right. He would yeah. excoriate. He would just drag America for its militarism, materialism, individualism, um, racism, etc. Just drag America, right? Mm -hmm. Well, come about 1916, these are not my words now, these are the words of, words of Professor um, Kevin uh, Burton, who just graduated from uh, Florida State, I believe, um, mm -hmm. with his doctorate on um, Millerism. Um, mm -hmm. He's an Adventist. And yeah, he's that in the 1900, at the turn of 1916, we got visited by the FBI. And they mm -hmm. said, you all sound like communists. And they said, you all need to change what you're saying. This is now he said this in 2020 on Ivor Myers' podcast. So yeah. you can go back and see it. Adventism and race. Ivor Myers, yeah. 2020. I am quoting that podcast. Him I and did, I watched it. I watched it. I he did said it. Him and Ben yeah. Baker. They said it three times a year on three separate podcasts. Yeah. They got visited by the FBI. They said, change the way you're talking about America. At which mm -hmm. point, now we have to have a conversation about how we talk about America. So we became futurists, America will become. We became predators. America has been, but mm. the present truth of prophetically critiquing the culture we mm. ceased to do, mm. and we lined ourselves up theologically and pragmatically with evangelical American culture. Mm. Did, mm. and so the nineteen nineteen Bible colleges, Bible conferences that they had, yes, they mm. were about reintroducing Ellen White to the population. But they were mm. also about reintroducing Revelation thirteen in a way that does not condemn America in the present tense. Wow. And so we don't talk, but why? Why is that the case? Because if we talk about America in the present tense, then we have to look at the plight of people of color that's going on at that time. Mm. And we have to understand that the decisions that they have are less than optimal. Absolutely. And we, and we, we, while we want to hold them individually accountable, we have a responsibility to alleviate the sociological confines that they find themselves in and create mm. a subculture in America where those confines no longer exist. Mm. And that would be the kingdom of God, the church. And the church yeah. opted to not do that. Mm. And so it's hard for us. It's hard with the Puritan work ethic and aligning ourselves with evangelicals. It's hard for us to consider the rest of responsibility that the culture, that the subculture of the church has mm. to alleviate the obstacles and to create a subcultural ecology that will mm. allow for, for more options mm. for people that are whose options are limited. We struggle with that to the degree that by the time you get to the 1960s, and we are now in the, in the civil rights, um, the editor, the two editors, the editor and the sub-editor of the review at that time, the, 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 the document changed. A.T. Jones, 1900s, early 1900s says, America is, is, is a problem. We need to do justice. We need to do right. This is the truth. Come mm -hmm. the 1960s, the editor and the sub-editor said that anybody that is engaged in um, social justice work, particularly ministers, is apostate. Yeah. Wow. So, the, so all we could say in the 20th century, and, and people can quote me, quote me and look at our presentations. Hmm. And I'm, pa I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Endure, and Jesus will fix it when he comes. So we're not going to remove any sociological boundaries. We're not going to remove any sociological obstacles. We're not going to create a culture in which you can thrive, educate. We're not going to do that. We're going to let those things slip aside, right? Because it's all about individual piety. 
Hmm. Individual piety, not sociological communal responsibility within the church. Hmm. Now, mind you, this totally contradicts Joseph Bates. Exactly. It does. Bates, when he it thought does. the Lord was coming, he said, I need to desegregate public transportation. Correct. Yeah. And he did because he thought the Lord was coming. 20th yeah. century Adventism, we think the Lord is coming. We just need to endure evil until he gets here. Hmm. And we began to participate in evil. So you ended up with segregated churches that demanded segregated conferences because we were participating in the evil. 1920s happens. 1920s hmm. happens. What happened in the 1920s after uh, the 19, uh, uh, 19 uh, restructuring of, of, the, of, of basically the Three Angels message and its applicability? What hmm. happened? M.L. Andreasen comes on the scene and his last generation theology comes on the scene. And that thing is entirely individualistic. God mm. cannot even come back, and God could actually lose the great controversy if he does it. Read it, last generation chapter of his book, The Last Generation, The Sanctuary Service. Read The Last Generation. In that book, it says that even though Jesus won on Calvary, Satan still has a chance to beat God. He can beat the last generation. That, that is, I'm, if I had the book, I'd be quoting it verbatim. Mm. I'd be quoting verbatim. And he said that God must answer Satan. It's an entire theoretical construction that he's done. And he says, God must answer Satan's accusations. He did that at the cross. Hmm. He must not do it with sinful human beings. Hmm. He will do whatever he does with sinful human beings. Hmm. But this theology of extreme individual piety hmm. and, 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 and a preference for individual piety at the hmm. exclusion of communal responsibility has pervaded the church since 1920. Hmm. And so that's kind of trickled down to the where we are right now. hundred percent. hundred percent. Everybody's too afraid to be found, to be found less than, than perfect. <laughs> Everybody, nobody even wants to say this happened to me. Forget that I did this. This happened to me. Yeah. People are terrified. They're terrified to say I am injured and I make injured decisions because of it. And we don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to care for that. We're not a caring church. We're an evangelizing church. Right. Right. You know, and so, you know, and that's it. That's it. And even now you, you look at our evangelism. It's ineffective. <laughs> it's ineffective. It's literally ineffective. I, and I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just saying from the numbers that we used to get from our evangelism to the numbers mm. that we get now, it is entirely ineffective. Mm. And look at the conferences. Don't quote me. Look at them. The state conferences are dead unless they have. They have the stats in Yeah, all the stats are out there in the open. You can see it. I've seen them. Absolutely, because we are irrelevant. Why? Because we gave up communal responsibility. We gave up communal connections. So we are irrelevant to the communities that our churches sit in mm. because we're not engaged in their lived experience. Mm. We don't care. We want to make sure they intellectually understand and accept our theological positions. Mm. We have no way to practically get them through the vicissitudes of life. Wow. Yeah. So everybody's putting on, on the plastic face and coming to church. <laughs> they don't even realize what they're doing. I wanted to go into your first service because you talked about the man for 38 years. Mm -hmm. I've, I've read that story so many times and never really saw the fact that he was just told, just get up just like that. Mm -hmm. Tell me why, why do you think, we have looked at that story and just automatically assumed that he was really sick, almost paralyzed. And it doesn't even say that. I think because we, so there are a lot of, there are a lot 
of healings mm. in the Bible. There's a lot of healing. And normally when we see healings, we think he, we see healing and curing taking place simultaneously. Right. Okay. So we assume that healing and curing are synonymous mm. and they're not. Mm. Another, a good illustration of healing and curing being different are this, um, the man coming through the roof. Yes. Jesus healed him. Your sins are forgiven. Right. How dare you? Who can say, okay, so let me cure him so you know I have the power to do this. Get up and walk. Two separate events. Exactly. One is curing, the other is healing. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So, yes. but, but, and so, you know, when I look at the text, I don't see a cure. Mm. The, the text says the man is powerless, but it doesn't say what it is. It's it, it, because it's almost, it's almost here. Yeah. It's almost a heart and mind issue. It's yeah, a weakness that is caused by, the text seems to allude to me, by a continued sinning. Mm -hmm. So it's a weakness that is caused an impotence that is caused by behavior. Mm -hmm. His behavior made him weak, whatever that behavior was. Mm -hmm. And he, he had been doing the same behavior 38 years, sitting at the pool, mm -hmm. laying down, whatever that is. You just kept getting weaker. And it was self-inflicted. Yeah. He, Ellen White talks about a statement, in, and I believe it's uh, Mind, Will, and Character. I think it's the name of the book. But she talks about how we don't know the true nature of the will or the true strength of the will. Yeah. And the idea that the will yeah. is the deciding agent. It, it is. is the commanding center. Mm. It is the thing that, that, that demands. The, the, the mind informs what you are experiencing mm -hmm. okay the emotions in, inform you that you are experiencing mm -hmm. but the will is the thing that says do something and this would be a man based on the text that has so used his will contrary to his alleged wants that he lacks the willpower to actually get up yeah he lacks it and so jesus has to come and give him a command like it's not, it's not, a, it's, he's not being mean, but he commands him, get up, get your step and leave. Like you're taking up space. Mm -hmm. There are people here that could actually use this water and use this space. Mm -hmm. You're taking up space for 38 years. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I think it also speaks to our desire to see something supernatural. There is a part of this, when I talk about faith, mm -hmm. there's a part of faith that we love to think is magic. Yeah. We love the magic of faith, but we don't like the responsibility of faith. And this was an emphasis on the faith's responsibility. Mm -hmm. You have a responsibility to engage your faith. Your faith is not a magic seed. Faith is simply trust-based actions in a less than optimal environment. That's all it is. Mm. I learned to trust in an optimal and known environment. And now something about my environment is not optimal or not known. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm going to engage in the same trust actions because I know that in which I trust. Mm -hmm. That's what faith is. That, so if faith is not actionable, if the environment is, 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 is known and resourced and mm -hmm. optimal and, right. faith, is, and faith, faith is not faith if there's no action. Right. Faith is not faith if the environment is optimal Faith is not faith if there's no action. Mm -hmm. You can, you please don't like, how many people do you know, ma'am, that have prayed? I prayed in faith, nothing changed. That's right, many, <laughs> many. Lord, I need a car. Yeah, but you ain't gone for a job. Uh, 
Lord, I, I want to, but, but you haven't educated yourself. Lord, mm-hmm. I need healing, but you ain't go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. You ain't changed your diet. You're mm-hmm. not exercising. What you want? That his, J, Jesus's own brother, James, says, show me your faith without works, and I show you my faith by my works. Mm-hmm. James, the brother of Jesus, demands that works are the manifestation of faith. In fact, yeah. he says, even the demons have faith, and they're afraid. Because yeah. the word is the same. It's not a different word. We switch it to believe, which brings a point. If you have intellectual knowledge, but no action, it's not faith. The demons have intellectual knowledge, but they cannot act on it. They have passed the point. So if we have intellectual knowledge of what God can do and we're not acting on it, waiting for God to mystically and magically do whatever it is we want him to, we prayed about him doing, that's not faith. That's not faith. At worst, it's demonic. Hmm. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I don't know. Um, When we think about it that way, when you think about faith that way, that that's the norm for us to when we need something to just to start praying and we just be fervent with it and fast and pray. But we just keep doing it and we're still looking for that reaction of what God is going to do. And it's, it's very clear, faith without works is dead. But we still keep on doing that kind of, that we just know that that's the way to do things. It's, and, it's and, that, and the problem that we have, if I may add this, Ms. Dawn, is that we read the Bible as if supernatural stuff is happening every day of the week. If you start the Bible on a Sunday, God spoke on Sunday. You could read the first seven days in one day. And God did seven supernatural things, six supernatural things, if you go to chapter two through verse four, seven Mm. things in one, you can read that in one day. Of course. That took seven days. Yeah. And then we don't know the time difference. You know, we we don't, you know, all of a sudden you read chapter two, now God's breathing into dirt Mm. and taking a rib out and forming somebody else. Now that that happened on day two of your reading. On day three, they got kicked out of the, out of the, out of the out of the garden we don't know how fast that how long that took we have no idea but on day four you're probably at at the flood by now right right on day seven you could be at babel and that's a span of hundreds of years exactly but we read these things like it's happening all the time Mm. and it's not it does. That is not how it works. The stories are not. And then we, we, the people, you know, God fed them manna in the wilderness. Yes, but he, he fed them fish in the New Testament. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like he fed, he fed, he fed the man with a raven in one of, in Kings somewhere. Elijah, yeah. You know, he only parted the Red Sea one time. Yeah. Like you don't find an, a synonymous duplication of the acts of God, but we read them. And the, the problem, these things are written, right, so that we may have faith, not in the actions, but mm. in the God that has ability and mm. in the God that is ever present. Mm. But it don't mean that he's going to work the same way for me like he did for Elijah. Mm. That's not the case. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You talked about the sins of the generations. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how do we change? Well, my question is to you is how do we change the trajectory of 
this generational curse that we still see happening if we're not talking. If we're not what? If we're not talking about it. Exactly. It takes somebody to admit it and to change. You cannot change a generational curse if you're not talking about it and admitting it. You cannot. You, you cannot. Someone must acknowledge that it is there and take steps, even if it's a small step. Mm -hmm. I saw a meme on Facebook earlier today, or maybe it was on LinkedIn, but it doesn't matter. And there were two planes took off from L.A. One degree of difference. Somebody ends in New York, somebody ends in D.C. Mm -hmm. Over the trajectory of the trip. They end up with two different, small, you don't have to be nothing drastic. Small changes change the trajectory of the entire, of the entire family line. How do I know? The Bible says in, uh, in, in Exodus, um, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and to the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Mm -hmm. Yep. But showing mercy unto thousands, thousands of what? Thousands of generations. Yeah. of them that love me. So, I mean, think of the hope of that. You and I exist because a thousand generations ago, some ancestor said, my mm. bad, Lord, let me change the trajectory. Mm. My bad. And so somebody has to say, with whatever they know about God, Lord, my bad, let's change the trajectory. I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing this thing. Help me, give me strength, help me change. I'm going to, I'm going to do something different than my parents. I'm gonna do something different than my grandparents. I'm going to start having the conversations. Somebody has to do it, somebody. And one mm -hmm. of the, you know, we love to, we get stuck in honoring our parents, right? Yeah. We get stuck okay. in that. And, and, and so we end up duplicating our parents. <laughs> and the problem is that that's not honoring. I honor my father by being better than him. But we always say that we, we're not going to talk about these kind of things because it's just going to hurt them. It if doesn't we matter. Bring it up. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the reality is not that I'm trying to hurt them. I'm trying to save their grandkids. Hmm. So I can save them the emotional toil and grief of the things they've experienced and the things they have done. And in so saving them, I condemn myself and their grandkids to doing the exact same thing or worse. Or I can say, you lived your life and the consequences are whatever you deal with, but we're going to talk about this because I'm not going to have my girls going through what I went through. Yeah. And I'm honoring them because I'm making sure the family line is what they dreamed, not what they created. Oh, wow. Oh, that's the Holy Ghost right there. Yeah, yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. Because I've heard it so many times. I don't want to talk about it because my parents are still alive. And it's just going to hurt them if they hear all the different things that went on, all the things that happened, all the things that they did. They're going to be so embarrassed about what was being done or done to me or said to me or whatever. And we don't think about, you know, I, and I've always said this, why are we not talking about this? Because then how how's the next generation going to know that they're not supposed to or this is not acceptable? And exactly. then they and then they end up in the same situation again and again and again and i've seen it even within my own family dynamics seeing the grandparents have done it back in the day but i didn't do it i didn't know about it but then my next one is like wait a minute it's happening again you know yes. it's yes and then you still don't get the whole story you just get part of the story so you don't really know all the other little details and it's it's just i don't i don't know how we can actually change that 
unless we one at a time we just start talking about it you know agreed 100 percent agreed um yeah. i know a gentleman he's a good colleague of mine i will not say his name or where he's from but um his family was very dysfunctional um and him and his him and his wife um they literally got up and moved away mm-hmm. and they didn't they're not not disrespecting the family but we're not walking that journey mm-hmm. and and everybody was mad at them for a while and then guess what one sibling got up and went to college and now they're following his trajectory his family is very healthy his kids are doing very well and guess what one parent moved to where they were right and started a new life down where they were their own life down there the other parents are to come to visit somebody has to take hold of the rudder and turn the boat that's right somebody has to yeah. and people and 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 it's okay because whose son am i i'm the son of william and tosca hmm. because i have changed directions their names are held in reverence mm. Do you understand? Their names are held in reverence because mm-hmm. I've changed directions and everybody knows me for who I am, not for who they were. Right, right, right. But, are, we, but again, we have, to, we have to, we as the change agents of the family have to recognize I am going to represent my parents better than they represented themselves. My grandparents better than they represented themselves. I will do it. Mm-hmm. Who's your ancestors? Them. I come from them. They mm-hmm. produced me. See, right. that's part of owning the story. Right. Like, like my parents are some of the most loving people and that everybody has a flaw and a challenge. Okay, I don't have to demonize them for that. No. It's part of the story. I come from that and I come from their successes. Yes. If generational curses can be handed down, generational blessings and strengths are handed down as well. Amen. Own the story, own it, own both sides. And see, we, we love to say living in the gray. I don't call it that. I call it living in the red. You know, there's absolute sin and there's absolute holiness. And in between, there's the blood of Jesus. Mm. And everybody gets covered in the blood of Jesus. So I can own the good and the bad, knowing that even my good is covered by the blood of Jesus. Mm. See, I'm about to start preaching. We got to keep going. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me go back to... Um, the last thing I really wanted to cover was at the end, you talked about the faith chapter mm-hmm. and you went through the faith chapter, but then you had your own faith chapter mm-hmm. kind of thing. Tell me, just, just expound on that, that a little bit more as to why you came up with that. Okay. So, uh, so, uh, so because we, we lionize those guys in the faith chapter and they're horrible mm-hmm. people. <laughs> Like there's no way on God's green earth that I'm gonna hand my wife twice to save my neck to two other people. Mm. Now I'm gonna you I'll 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 become a murderer before I do that. Mm. That's I mean I'm just not handing. Baby, why don't you go over there and sleep with them? Because if not, they're gonna kill me. No, I'm not doing it. It's, it's not happening. It happened twice to Sarah, and she mm-hmm. did it. Yeah. It happened once to Rebecca, and she did it. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Like they went over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They agreed. Yeah, what kid is not that that what? And that's the, that's the father and mother of the faithful. I know. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah you, you, Jacob, good grief! What a mess. <laughs> you know, patriarch of the twelve who were a mess. Mm. They were a mess. Simeon and Levi killed a whole town. Reuben slept with his stepmother. You know mm. what I'm saying? 
Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. I mean, come on. Which one is great? Samson, good God almighty. We lionize these people like they're perfection personified, but they are in Faith's Hall of Fame for a reason. Mm -hmm. They're there showing us that imperfect people who have great moments, Mm -hmm. God grabs that and says that's good enough. That's it. And and then there's the people that we don't talk about because the text goes on and says, still others. Yeah. That's the text. In Hebrews 11, for your listeners, if you read through all these superheroes of the Bible, and then all of a sudden it gets to, and still others. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't bother to try and give you a list. Which means there are people who behaved in trust, in less than trustworthy environments, and they did not get the outcome that they hoped. Mm. Hagar would be a good illustration. Mm. She had not desired to be the concubine of, 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 of Abraham. That was not her want. She did not want. She had no choice. She was a slave. She had no decision in the factor. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? None. Mm-hmm. She ends up pregnant. She gets kicked out. She gets beat by, by, by Sarah, and she runs away. God meets her and says, go back. <laughs> And she went back in faith. Yeah. She had a boy, a good boy. Ishmael was a good boy. We like to translate that, that he was mocking Jacob. I mean, uh, 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 Isaac. We like to translate that as mocking. It just says he's playing. It's his birthday. He's not. Who goes to their brother's birthday and makes fun of them? Come on. <laughs> More than likely, Ishmael is playing with the boy. And Sarah is so whatever, she says, that boy will not grow up with my son. Kick them both out. And the Lord tells Abraham, your wife has said, well, kick him out. So Hagar leaves in faith. (laughs) She raises the boy in faith. God says, I will make him a great nation. Don't worry about it. I will bless him because of who his father is. Mm. Why isn't she in the Hall of Fame? Mm. You see what I'm saying? Why isn't she in the Hall of Fame? Why isn't Jeff Jephthah is in the Hall of Fame? Why isn't his daughter in the Hall of Fame? She knew she was going to die. Mm. But she went away for three months. She knew. She didn't become a nun. She didn't live in celibacy. Her dad killed her as a sacrifice to God to keep his oath. And in the entire text, God never said a word. She went away, mourned her virginity for three months, came back and submitted to her dad in faith. We don't talk about those people because it's not a happy ending. Isaiah died in faith. He was sawn in half by Manasseh, prophet of the Lord, wrote one of the longest books in the Bible, sawed in half. What? These people yeah. died in faith. They died in faith. Yeah. You, you, we, we, I could, I could pull, I could go to uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and the modern version of it is uh, the Jesus Freaks, and I, we could talk about the people that died um, in uh, the first century as Christians, mm. praying to the Lord mm-hmm. in faith, ripped to shreds by lions and dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody interceded for them. Nobody came and, and no angel intervened. I'm sure they had the stories of 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 God parting the Red Sea and and here he comes in the lion's den and the three Hebrew boys and they were burnt alive. 
That's right. They died in faith. They chose to stand there and trust in God, and God did not move at that time on their behalf. Right. Like, we got to wrestle with that God. Mm. We can bring it forward in faith. In faith. Listen to this. Rwanda. <laughs> Inches College. <laughs> the president and his son belong to one tribe. Adventists mm. from another tribe come onto the campus in faith. Yeah. In faith in the Lord and in their Christian brother. And their Christian brother calls his fellow tribesmen and says, come here. And the people are there in faith. And they get hacked to death. Yeah, I heard about it. Or, or we can talk about, and, and this ain't me, Samuel Corrington Pippin mentions this in one of his books. He says there was a group of people, choir. They break in, separate the tribes. Hutus on one side, Tutsis on the other. They tell one tribe to kill the next tribe. That's right. There are no Hutus or Tutsis here. We are only Christians. And they said it yeah. in faith. They all got gunned down. That's right. See, we got our faith twisted. We got faith as we think that faith ensures the response that we want. No, faith is in the God who is ever present and is always loving. There is no guarantee that your faith will make God do a single thing. We have faith in the character of God, in the love of God, and in the presence of God, period. Right. We have faith in, we have taught people to have faith in, in the outcomes. <laughs> and that ain't biblical faith. No, it's not at all. Wow. Well, you know what? I think we're going to end right there because I think that's a powerful thing. <laughs> I think that's a powerful note to end on because I think we really do have to, I mean, your sermon, God, faith, and trauma all mixed together, but at the end of it, we have to really, really check what our faith really looks like, really dissect it and, and really take it to God and ask God, you know, how faithful do you, how faithful do I need to be? Search me, find out if there is anything within me that I need to be taking stock of so that I can actually do the work that he has given us to do. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to thank you. And again, always great, great to listen to you because I listened to you before and I was just like, oh my goodness, this is, this is amazing. And then now I get to talk to you and, and talk to you about what you were talking about. It's just powerful, powerful. So I thank you again for your powerful sermons. Um, something that's really definitely going to stay with us um, that we can you know, really meditate on and ask God to really direct our steps and to help us to understand how our lives are really supposed to be and how we can really serve him the right way. So at the end now, I'd like you to pray for us as we end this podcast. Mm -hmm. Loving God, we want to thank you for Jesus. Mm. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus because it is his life yeah. It makes life meaningful. It is his sacrifice that gives us hope and purpose and drive. Mm. Um, his life and sacrifice and life again. We thank you that he didn't just stop with a sacrifice. Um, and so God, today, this evening, we ask God that you would honestly heal our hearts. Mm. 
heal our hearts from the traumas that we have experienced or that are in our families. You can heal our families of the trauma going back to the source so that you, we are delivered from the bondage of the trauma. You can do that. You can do that. It's not, it's not that, that we can be delivered from the bondage. The effects may be there, but we can be delivered from the bondage of the trauma that is in the family line. Father, we look to you to do that today. God, teach us how to walk. Teach us how to faith walk. Mm. How to faith live. Yes. How to faith choose. Teach us how to faith study and faith work. Faith not in the outcomes, even though you said that we can move mountains and we will do greater things than Jesus. You did say that. Um, but that we will be, we will, we will, we will have, our faith will be in the fact that you have promised that you are present um, and that you, that you, that you are forever interested, um, that you are forever loving us regardless of the outcome. Mm-hmm. Our faith is an integrity walk, a, sub, a life of submissive integrity. God, teach us that. Help us to live that way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And to all our podcast listeners, we'd like to say thank you for listening again. Remember, any questions and comments you may have, you can um, text us at 954-388-8780 or at plantationsda.tv. And thank you again, um, Dr. Rook, for coming again. And also to um, everyone else. We hope that you have a blessed week and we look forward to hearing or talking to you again next week with our next speaker. Bye-bye.